For as long as I've known the NBA, it's been a stars league. But even among the stars, there's an exclusive club. Russell, Dr. J, Jordan, Kobe. They're all part of a select group that paved the way for the NBA superstar of today. And some even shared secrets with each other along the way. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Jackie McMullen, and this is the Icons Club. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. I have new rewatchables coming on Monday night. We're doing the 30th anniversary of The Player, Robert Altman's classic, one of the first meta Hollywood movies of the modern era. We'll talk about that and a whole bunch more. This is a really fun movie to rewatch. Couldn't have enjoyed it more. Also, the Ringer uh, NBA show, hitting all the basketball subplots. So is the Mismatch Podcast. So is the Ringer Gambling Show. We're going to get that going as well. The Prestige TV Podcast has a bunch of stuff coming this week. We had uh, Severance put that one up recently, season finale. Atlanta doing that every week. We have Barry coming. We have Better Call Saul coming. We're going to do a winning time, midseason check-in. Tokyo Vice, very possible. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. Coming up on this podcast, it's a two-parter. We're taping this part. It's the tail end of the Masters. We're going to hit that. We're going to hit uh, MVP, All-NBA. Are people afraid of Brooklyn? What's going on here? Try to put that up as fast as we possibly can. This should be less than an hour. And then part two will go after the West Coast games tonight when we know all the playoff matchups. Ryan Russillo is here. It's a special staggered two-part BS podcast. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, right now it is 3.40 Pacific time on the West Coast. Masters wrapping up. Sheffler murdered it. Took out all the drama, basically. Still a memorable Masters because Tiger Woods. Rosello is here. This is, I wouldn't say best sports weekend of the year, but it's in like the top seven or eight, right? Last day of the NBA season. Little Masters. Baseball starting. It's, it's just fun. It's a fun day to be alive. Plus you had F1. I know you're up in like what in the middle of the night. What was going on there? Yeah, yeah. I stayed up late for that one. Turned down a invitation to a party that was actually nearby too. And I was like, oh wow, I got invited to something. And then I'm like, yeah, I actually have to watch F1. And the guy was like, are you serious? 
And because uh, you was, love it, it wasn't even for work. Like you just love F one. Yeah, I don't know. You know what it is, and this is exactly why I like the UFC the way that I like it. Is I don't really have to talk about it. I'm not sitting there constantly examining my angles, my takes. Is this right? Is this wrong? Write this down, or all this stuff. I just sit back and enjoy it because there's no there's no takes to develop. I have some, but uh, I just I don't know. It's it the last year or so, and now that we understand, like the best thing any sport can do is get you invested in character, right? Just like a story, and that's what F1 has done as well as anybody because it was all new to most of us that just got into it. Well, at the Masters, the Netflix, the the crew, because they're doing a similar version of the F1 series and was talking to one of the people involved with it. And it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see if they can bring some of those golfers to life in the same way. Because I think the difference is, I feel like I already know a lot about some of the golfers. F1, I, I was coming in blind. I didn't know anything about anything. I'd heard of Lewis Hamilton and that's about it. So that's going to be a tough one too, I think tap into with the golf, but I, and plus we already know the results. Whereas like I'm watching the F1, the first couple of seasons, I have no idea who's winning any race. Every yeah. single outcome is a complete surprise to me. First of all, the Netflix crew, crew that did it, I mean, they did an incredible job. You couldn't do a better job than how they did it, but it's yeah. exactly to your point. None of us knew anything about it. So all of us are probably collectively over hard knocks, even though you would end up learning about a couple players every year, or you'd be like, wow, that's that coach's deal when you'd watch it. But we still knew it. this was so new to all of us yeah. that I think that became, well, wait a minute. Now I want to see is, is Verstappen insane. I want to see right. like, who do I like? Toto Wolf or Christian Horner? I mean, is Ferrari doomed is what, what's up with McLaren. So like then to apply three to four seasons, of the Netflix show to the knowledge of our, and now I actually know what the hell's going on. And it's even cooler too, because it, it's like if you would never, I don't know, played an instrument before, right? And then you were super into playing that instrument. It would all be so new to you that you would kind of advance. I don't know, maybe playing an instrument is not a great analogy because at the beginning, everybody's terrible. But um, right. to, to understand pit strategy when I'm watching a race like last night, as opposed to three years ago, if I turn it on, I'd be like, what the hell is going on? It's just fun that you kind of know the deal. So I don't know if the golf thing will work because you're right. It's not like we're intimate with all these guys, but it's not brand new the way F1 was to so many Americans. Yeah, it's funny when you, uh, I remember in the mid-2000s when I started watching soccer and I started to see kind of the angles and there's a lot of stuff that reminded me of basketball, right? The passing, the give and go, the triangles, things like that. And there, there was a geometry to it that eventually made sense to me. But now I feel like when I watch a soccer game, I see so much more than I did. I'm sure everyone's the same thing. Like you mentioned like the pit stops and just some of the positioning, especially I, you know, for me, like the newcomer, the first lap is probably the most exciting part because it's just watching those guys. You always know somebody's going to bump into somebody and there's so much kind of maneuvering that goes on. It's riveting. Like it, you, you, it's it, probably the best lap, right? What other than that? And then there'll be, you know, a couple near the end when somebody's got to make a move. But the, the beginning, but it's oh. all chaos. You're just watching it going, how do they know what they're doing? How do they know where to go? And how do they not just all crash into each other every time? No, it's a great point. And I think if you're looking for a comp, it is a little bit like the NBA because there's so much bullshit. There's so much drama. There's so much like to yeah. think that you would have a guy in Mercedes team and in, in Valerie, um, a Valtteri Botas, where you're like, no, no, you're supposed to let the other guy pass you all the time. And <laughs> right. you're like, wait, wait, I'm just supposed to let Westbrook get all the rebounds. Like, this is weird. Um, and <laughs> Steven, <laughs> Steven Adams. <laughs> right. Steven Adams is the Botas in the NBA. So yeah. then when you throw in, None of us agree on anything. And when there are crashes, with, like the stuff that was happening with Max and Lewis last year, yeah. and then I would go and watch these YouTube videos after the fact because I knew that I didn't know. 
I'm like, wait, who's at fault here? Wait, if he's past his rear wing, does that mean he has a line? Is he blocking him or is he cutting him off? Who's? And then I would go and research, like trying to get more educated on it. And everybody disagreed with each other. So I was like, yeah. this is perfect. It's just like the NBA. Well, and that, and so different than what happened to baseball, where there's no way to really argue about anything. You know, where it's it's just everything is solved by the stats for the most part. I was talking to somebody about this at the Masters, actually. We were talking about how Jeter versus Nomar was like the last truly great baseball argument. It was pre-stats, and it was all eye test, and it was all that old school radio stuff like, I don't know, man, Jeter, but two outs, that's the guy. You know, <laughs> that, we had no way to back it up. We're all just talking out of our ass. But I don't know, in a lot of ways, it was more fun. It was. I remember being, you know, among my Boston crew, the guy in a couple of those Tejada years where I'd go, you know, I'm not sure I wouldn't take Tejada. He's like, <laughs> right. shut the fuck up, Priscilla. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was a three-bed race for a while. Well, uh, A-Rod was better than all of them, if we're being honest. I always took him off the table. I mean, his stats were like 20% uh, okay. better than everybody right, else. Right. <laughs> that was the best part when the Yankees got him and they had moved him to third base. This is basic. Like, it was you, funny you, too, because that was the him beginning. Out of position. That was the beginning of some real awareness on some of the defensive metrics. And they were yeah. like, the Yankees are putting the guy who's amazing at third base while, because Jeter had that ridiculous left to right and then launch himself, throw it to first. Yeah. And so everybody'd be like, oh my God, this guy's the best. And then every metric came out and they were like, actually, Jeter's incredibly overrated. So I don't know. It's funny how stats, I mean, this is a much bigger topic. We could go for an hour on this, but I don't know that stats have made us smarter um, in everything. You know what I mean? And it definitely will lead to the MVP stuff that we talk about a little bit later because there's almost always ways to counter all of this stuff. But the Jeter stuff was, yeah. Because then I think they also had a thing where it was like, yeah, if you actually look at his clutch numbers, they're not much better than everybody else. And it's like, yeah, but can, am I allowed with yeah. two strikes to be scared shitless of him? Am I allowed to know that he's going to just dribble one down the right field fucking line and end up on second base pointing back at the dugout? Yeah. Like, am I can, allowed to believe that exists? Because it feels like it does. Can you change what happens to my blood flow when <laughs> Jeter's up with two outs? Like, I'm just more nervous. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care what the stats are. I feel like he's poking over the second base of his head. Exactly. And he's going to knock the dude home. And I don't care what the stats are. And I was I, always I, scared when it came up. I still remember that day playoff game against Pedro where Pedro, you know, like they they had a they had a better attack against Pedro because they'd faced him a million times. The same way the Red Sox lineup were a little bit more comfortable with Mariano because they'd faced him a million times in all those spots. Like they kind of it makes sense. And I'll just never forget that dribbler down the right field line. I was like, he barely mm. fucking hit that. And uh it was against Pedro. Like, I do love a lot of the baseball stats because I'm still in that AL auction league. And there's some really good ones that help try to determine, especially like when you get to FIP and X FIP and how lucky a pitcher was and shit like that. Who are you on? Who are you on this year? I had just had my draft. I'm thinking about doing a two-hour special standalone issue release pod where I just recap my entire draft and my strategy through all 26 rounds. It's going to be about well, two hours. First of all, I think you should absolutely do that. I would listen to all two hours. So I up. think the most fascinating thing that's happened with baseball is what happened to the pitchers where, and we saw it this year in my auction draft for the first time, the pitcher money was just way lower than the hitter money. And there was too much... The, all of a sudden, the hitters became way prioritized about halfway through the draft. And all of a sudden, I'm spending $13 on Tyler Wade and shit like that. And you're just going, what just happened? Right? You know, and you're trying to figure out who are starters that you'd want to spend more than like 15 bucks on. Because nobody, look at what happened this weekend. Everybody was pitching like four innings, you know? And in, in the old days, 
you'd want like the $30 starter if you're trying to win, you know, or you'd want like the two $22 starters. Now it's like, all right, if I get Drew Rasmussen and he can throw 135 innings for me for, you know, 10 bucks, isn't that probably the best use of that 10 bucks over like I spent 32 on Cole and then he has like a forearm injury and he's out for eight weeks and then I'm completely screwed. So we were all trying to have, and then on top of it, we were talking closers before we went on. You know, you get a closer and there's a new closer a week later. All of a sudden it's like, (laughs) who's Steckin Rider? That guy's the closer now? What happened? I paid for this other guy. So it's just like, it's complete chaos. I used to keep track of closer depth charts. Like I was big into it, right? And now I went into my draft and I go, I'm taking one guy that I know I can pencil in for like 30 plus saves. I'll take the one guy earlier than maybe everybody else does. Yeah. And at least I know I have one, but um to back in the day like i used to go i don't want to be chasing saves all fucking season it's the worst feeling when there's no options and now i'm like whatever there's there's 20 guys that are getting saves that aren't even drafted you know so i'll figure it out and right and you can to, get in the free agent auction right. you can right. get like a four dollar reliever and all of a sudden that guy has 25 saves at the end of the year i mean we're going to talk about the nba stuff later <laughs> but it is it is like the, the NBA is a piece of this now because the advanced metrics on the one hand have almost become too part of the narrative. But on the other hand, they're undeniable in some cases. Like the Jokic stuff is just batshit crazy. You look at every, every single advanced metric. It's so out of whack on top of like who he's playing with. And, you know, at some point it becomes undeniable. I really like the on-off rating, the stuff like that. I thought that was helpful, especially for guys like Tatum who I know we'll talk about later, but you see, there's some stuff where you're like, wow, Tatum's, you know, almost plus 12 is net rating. Like that's a real number. It's number one in the league. And it, if you're trying to think, is he first team, second team? I value that stuff. What other, what other stats do you look at as you're looking at the, the fancy stuff? Well, you know, it's been really interesting this year because I think there's been so much anti-Jokic stuff on social media that I don't know if that's a true reflection of like the people that are actually voting or cover the league. You know, it's I, been, I would say it is not a true reflection. No. So it, it feels like all of it's just been thrown in this category where all of the stuff is just stupid, right? Like anything that Jokic, the alphabet soup things that the people call it, like all of the different stuff. You're like, oh, well, true shooting percentage. We're like, well, that's not a made up thing. Like there's a, I, are we doing this now? Cause I mean, we can No, go. but I think we should talk about the stat stuff now, at least like. All right, I, I'll do I'll do one example. I'll do but one wait, example. What, what you just said, I think part of it has to do with how many fans does the guy have and how afraid are you to feel like you're antagonizing those fans if you're swimming against the stream against them. So it's almost like the more fans somebody has, the more controversial it is to, to swim against the stream. Whereas Jokic, Denver, you know, is one of the least profile playoff teams we have. So how many Denver fans are coming at you if you start taking shots at Jokic? If I take shots at Embiid, people are coming. Yeah, no, it's a good point because I would say Bucks fans are very vocal. Nuggets fans are actually sneaky, very vocal. And then Philly, I mean, you and I have obviously, you know, felt it uh, over the years. Um, but like, I'll use one as an example, okay? Because what's, what's happened now, at least that I've noticed on social media, is that you're, if you're arguing one of the numbers, whether it's box score plus minus, if you're doing some of the defensive plus minus stuff, which by the way, Jokic is ahead of Embiid in defensively on some of the stuff. I don't believe that. Yeah. Like I've watched enough of it and I go, okay, that's one that I can kind of dismiss. So I'd ask a very simple question. What's a smarter way to approach all this stuff? Because there's there's this also this camp of like the real hoopers think all of this is bullshit. 
And you're like, all right, well, is that smarter than maybe understanding what each number means and then dissecting their flaws? Like, I think PER does a good job, but I also know it's incredibly flawed and it's weighted towards maybe we didn't understand this when we were younger. But like, wait, if you don't take a ton of shots and you live around the rim and you have a high field goal percentage and incredible rebound rate and you're not really turning it over because you're not making basketball decisions other than cleaning up at the rim then you're going to have a really high PER. That's why like Robert Williams at times, you're like, wait, is he the eighth best player in the NBA? You're like, of course not. That's why Hassan Whiteside got paid a hundred million bucks. When wind you're shares like, is another one like that, where it's so tied to how many wins your team has. Yeah. You know, that's, it's good. That, it's good, but it's not, it's one of 15 things you should be using. But then I'll also notice if you're a pro analytic guy, you may stack the, t- like, this is always one of my favorite things where you could tell somebody's telling on themselves is they'll make an argument where they come up with like four stats, it's basically the same fucking stat. It'll be like most free throw attempts, most free throw attempts per game, highest free throw attempt per 36 rate. (laughs) You just go, you just told me the same stat three different ways. So Jokic dominates all of these things, which we'll get into more depth once we get to it. But say you're pro Embiid and anti-Jokic. You're like, oh, it's all these stats and I'm a real hooper and all these stats are fucking stupid and all this stuff. And you're like, okay, but you realize that Embiid also kills it in a lot of these stats too, which tells you that there's some real impact stuff, especially when it's on off the court. So if you look at the single season leader for box score plus minus, that means when you're in versus when you're out, right? Yeah. Jokic is about to set the all-time record in NBA fucking history, Okay. The all-time record. Now, if you're anti-Jokic, you'd be like, oh, look at you, you idiot. What are you, at Sloan again this year? And you're like, okay. Well, you no, realize- you, would say, you would say that's dependent on the fact that he didn't have a good bench either. Okay, so right. it's, a, it's like an outsized impact when he's not out there okay, because that's of the fine. bench. But here's the other thing. is like Giannis this year is going to be 15th all-time in this category because his numbers are crazy too. Yeah. And needs a little bit lower on this one. But for this specific number, say you're dismissive of Jokic or even dismissive of what you're talking about, you know who's number two all time? 2008, 2009, LeBron. And number three all time is 87, 88, MJ. So mm. it's not like Dolph Shays is fourth all time in this weird number where you're like, oh, I've exposed it. And that's what I think is kind of funny is that when you completely dismiss all of it, you are also probably dismissing the players that you're always caping for in some other argument. Yeah, and then the games played thing got really screwed up the last couple of years too. Oh, that used to be a much better indicator than I think it is. You know, since we had the pandemic season, we had that ended in the bubble. Then we had the shortened season last year, and then the season this year where we still had these COVID scratches and stuff like that. So, you know, looking at the history of this stuff, which we talked about last week, but in the old days, if it was like you know somewhere fifty-five to sixty games, that was a lot of games to miss. Now it's like. It almost feels like it's the new 62 to miss, something like that. I uh, I think that people are getting better at county defense when they figure out the NBA and the MVP than they used to be. It was way more of a almost like who's the best fantasy player award in a lot of ways. So that part's improved. And I don't know. I the The narrative moves so much as it goes. I feel like it was way more important. Maybe this started in 2017 for real. But I felt like it was the first time. This was like a six-month thing this year. We were, and you, we've talked about this, but like it was game 12. People are like, who's the MVP? You know, it's fun to check in. It's fun to check in on quarters, trimesters. But this is around the time we should really be having the honest conversation, which we're going to do later. We want to talk about the Masters. Stats. So I was with House and, ne- and uh, 
Nathan Hubbard. They used a lot. They used a lot of the ball striking stats for some of their picks, and they did really well. Like they had Morikawa to win in top ten, and they had Zal Torres and Sheffer. We did a Fanduel cream of young cream of some young guns parlay, which was Scheffler, Morikawa, and Zal Torres all to make top twenty, and it was like plus five to one almost. That was our big same game parlay for the tournament. It, they almost had a chance to get top five for those three guys. Sheffer won. The re- reason I'm bringing it up is like there's some good stats for how the guy is going like the two months leading in, what the ball striking is, you know, how they, how the masters compares to the ball striking stuff. And those guys are really into it and it works. And I don't think like in the eighties we were doing this with like Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson. Like what's the, what are the ball striking for Nicholas? Can, can I ask you like, cause I don't know. I mean, what are we talking about their overall rate of accuracy with different elements Yes, the whole and, like, and okay, length of tee. course, yeah, right. all kinds of different things. Let's uh, let's talk about the Masters. We'll take a quick break. So Scotty Scheffler wins. He just locked it down. I'm watching him shake hands. Poor Cam Smith completely fell apart in the 12th hole. The 12th hole is like it's a haunted house documentary over the triple years. right it's into the water. Yeah, I mean it's we'll go into that a little bit later. Scheffler is 25 years old. Nathan and House both thought that this all started at the Ryder Cup. He got thrown against Rom on the last day. Kind of sacrificial lamb. We'll let, you know, we'll throw a young guy against Rom. Probably going to lose. Rom's the best golfer in the world. He beat him. And since then, he's been on a tear. This is the fourth PGA title that he's won. This is the biggest one he's won. He's the third youngest guy to ever win the Masters. Tiger, Spieth, Scheffler. Here's my question for you. When Spieth did this in 2016, everybody was so enamored with him. And with Scheffler, it felt like Tiger overpowered the weekend to the point that it, it you didn't get that kind of Spieth bump. With like, oh my God, this guy's so young. I can't believe it. This is so great. It was like just Tiger, Tiger, Tiger. And that's, I guess, the way it should have been. You were, I was there for the first couple of days. You were watching from afar. What did it feel like to you? It was all Tiger. I mean, it always yeah. is, which is just part of it. So I think there's... Obviously, his return, how he looked. I mean, I think we're going to have Van Pelt on, but he and I were talking about it a little bit. And it's like, look, he's he's banged up. And then when you saw Tiger finish up today and walk back to the clubhouse, you're like, all right, this is... Would you hear the quotes yesterday when he was talking about... Because he sucked yesterday and he said it was just... It was cold. I couldn't get warmed up. I'm, I'm really banged up. We found it. We talked on the Thursday pod about just watching it in person, watching him walk up and down hills, watching him try to kind of stand still on greens when he wasn't involved, which the cameras aren't showing, and just how uncomfortable he seemed the whole time. I thought it was one of the coolest things I've seen in person. Like somebody who's just like, I don't care how much pain I'm in. I'm still making this happen. I'm still getting this done. I'm finishing these these four rounds. He okay, did so, it, but yeah. So I want to ask you more about it because you were there, but just to follow up on the shuffler part. So he's 25. Yeah. Do you think because Spieth is 21, Tiger was 21? Yeah, you know, maybe. maybe it's just we're over it if you're if you're not if you're not setting a new standard. Um, because I don't remember Yeah, I'll I think honest. that's fair. Spieth was four years younger, but at the same time, you know, Sheffler's very similar personality wise, kind of demeanor wise to Spieth. He's just steady. You could feel it on day two as he started to kind of pull away. He just, you know, Spieth until that twelfth hole at the Masters in 2016 was just What's going to phase this guy? Anything? Nothing. And it's so funny with golf. One thing can happen. It flips. 
So what was it like? I mean, give me, give me the foot. You've been there a couple times, right? So compare this with the tiger element to the, well, did you go when he won, by the way? Is that the other time? You no, went? I didn't. The, the tiger thing was so amazing to see in person. We caught probably six of his holes the first day. Second day, it was just too, too many. Everyone was following him, which gave you all this opportunity um, to check out some other people. So we parked at the 10th hole of the second day, which is downhill par four. And uh, big approach shot that you, we were right behind the green, you could see. And we got to see all the golfers we didn't see the first day, like DJ and Rom and you know, everybody. And uh, probably the highlight was the ball rolled right by us. And we had got to watch DJ try to get a ruling. Can I can I move the ball or not? The the the, uh, the rule guy had to come over, and it, we were just five feet away. It was it was incredible. And he's by the way like six four. He looks like he's like like looks like Jalen Brown. But um, but yeah, it was it was really <laughs> cool. How'd you land on Jalen? It looks like Brown? a small forward. It looks okay, like you were, right, you were like right. you're playing pickup. You'd be like, all right. Uh, it was really cool. But the Tiger thing would be the big memory. You know, not just that he was out there, which seemed impossible even three weeks ago, but that, uh, you know, that he got it out. He made the cut. You know, he, he and there was a couple moments in the second round when it was, seemed like it was going to go south. It just never did. I mean, he ended up, he was, I think, fifth worst from the bottom. But I, it's not the point. I mean, I think just for him to walk 32,000 yards in four days and hit however many golf shots he hit. Like, I, we never thought we'd see that again. Yeah, I don't know like what to do with with the golfers that that have these comebacks, you know, because part of it you go, all right, well, it's not like this proves that it's not clear. I don't want to turn into like his golf sport and athletes and all that kind of stuff, but to think of the severity of the injury when they start talking about amputation, and then you and, go, his, okay. and his and his tibia like basically disintegrating. They were saying, yeah. So I mean, he looked, he looked. Um, like it was impacting just his his day to day, and as you mentioned, the cold thing. But what I always thought was interesting about Augusta is that once you're there, it's probably the most protected atmosphere an athlete could have in any high leverage sporting event in the United States. And when Tiger came back after he went all through all the the family stuff, and then he was going to play Augusta, right? So he's like, I'm gonna, and I remember being with Van Pelt in the air, going like, Why would he pick this? Like, why would he come back and do this and not get a few under his belt? And then you're thinking, like, is he so concerned with the major chase of Jack that he's like, look, I got to, which I, by, by the way, I still think is always going to be a small part of it. Like, there was this yeah. one conversation or some debate that I saw, like, somebody asked Tiger if he thought he could win in the interview. And Tiger says, oh, of course I can win. And then people were like, oh, wow, he thinks he's ready to go. Like, first of all, what the fuck's he going to say? Like, I'm just here. I want to get a couple vests, you know? Um yeah, and and he's just like walking the course, <laughs> right? Right. He's, I love those. I love those peach ice cream sandwiches. Yeah. So you got to figure that's probably a little part of his calculation. In that, what if I, you know, put together three good days, and then it's Friday, or excuse me, it's it's the fourth day, it's Sunday, and I'm as comfortable with anybody in, in these big spots. Like you know, he's he's probably processing it that way. But isn't Scott, that isn't that what makes the all time great athletes great though? Is that they always like Brady right now? Brady's going to keep playing until he absolutely sucks. He's going to play until he has the Peyton Manning nine touchdowns, twenty interception season. Then it'll be over. But until that happens, he's going to keep playing. Right, and good for him. But yeah, when he came back to play Augusta, you know, however long ago that was with the iron through the windshield, 
Yeah. Scott's like, no, no, no. He goes, whatever you think it's about, it's, it's because once he's through those gates, everyone there is on his side for the most part. And right. it's comfortable for him. And I think that was a lot of what we just saw this past weekend too. You get the adrenaline from being there. You get the comfort of the course that he's had the most success at. I, I went to a Warriors game, I think in 2018, and, and I sat randomly next to Barry Bonds. And I was fascinated by how the San Francisco fans treated Bonds, which was like a deity. And I started asking around about it. And what I learned was that, first of all, Bonds lives in the Bay. Everybody loves him there. And it's kind of like, we don't care what the outside world thinks. This is our guy. This guy gave us some great moments and he belongs to us. So that's why he's there. And, and that made me, your tiger point made me think of that. Like whatever's going on with him at the masters, it's always going to be okay. Now Mickelson, I think would be the other one who that you would have said that about. He didn't go this week. And I think it would have been weird if he went. I actually think whatever happened with him might've actually gone too far with whether he would have gotten that fuzzy, warm feeling from the Augusta crowd. Maybe, I don't know. Everyone's so nice and polite there. Who knows? The Bonds thing is really good, though. That's because I had just started at ESPN in 06, 07. So it's Bonds' last two years. And you could argue that he's still, after missing a good chunk of 05, like, I mean, his, his OPP was still nuts. I mean, it was really weird in those last couple of years where everybody kept walking him again like he was going to hit 70 home runs. But we were doing the Bond Bonds watch, right? Like back old school radio, cut into live at bats yeah. for home runs. His people were like, oh, it's amazing. And I remember there was always pushback when it was Sosa, where all the guys on air were like, hey, no one cares. Let's get out of right. 1988. Like nobody gives a shit about going to live Sosa at bats nationally. But we would take calls on the shows. Hell, those shows are six hours long, so we had to fill it somehow. And every host is basically trashing Bonds at that point. They're like, this isn't fun. I don't enjoy it. He's he's an asshole about this. Like we had read the stories, you know, we kind of knew the full scope of it. And every time you would bring up bonds, it would be all San Francisco people defending him, calling him in, like losing their minds about it. And then you'd watch a game and everybody's cheering him like crazy. And I think it was a really good lesson in that the people closest to it that still benefit from it are never going to be negative. And well, that's the, bonds. A more normal version of what you just laid out was Brady to Flakegate when that became us against them with the Boston fans of Brady and he's getting railroaded. And, and I thought that pushed Brady to another level of popularity. Already, he was already on the top shelf, but that whole thing about that now they're coming after our guy that just tapped into all the muscle stuff and all the Boston stuff. And it was like, wait a second, fuck you. And, uh, and then that led to the next run he had. And in, in a weird way, it was like the best career move that ever could happen, even though I don't think it was intentional, but yeah, the Bonds thing, the fact that he's so popular there. And Tiger, we were talking about this on Thursday night. The level of adulation for him and the drop-off to the second guy level of adulation has to have been one of the most big, biggest drops-offs in the history of that tournament. Because Phil normally is the second guy, especially, you know, people really like Phil. They did 2019 PGA. He's relatable. He's out of shape. But now he's out. And it was like, who's the number two guy? Who is it? Are you saying the patrons are just not the, the peak level of fitness and that they relate? Well, especially the amount of cigarette smoking and cigar smoking and bad eating you see at this thing. Golf's in a weird place because they have so much young talent now. You know, you could you could say who's going to be the best guy of this generation and we could talk about nine different guys, you know, and then 
the DJ era. DJ's 37 now. Like this, this tournament, this is another one that was sitting right there for them. We thought after day one, he was going to win and he could just never get it going. But he's, you know, he's had, he's won a couple, but I still think it could be a disappointing outcome if he doesn't have a couple more for what his career could have been. Um, but when you go forward to this next generation, Bryson already looks like he's banged up. It looks like he put up too much. He looked terrible in person. Like we were so glad we bet against him to make the cut. But um, so Tiger's kind of levitating above everybody. And I guess that the, the next big star is the fact that there's so many stars that they have Morikawa and nine other versions of that kind of up and comer. You just kind of never know. Zalatoris today. Cam Smith looking yeah. like Joe Dirt. Yeah, no, I mean, everybody loves the Cam Smith look. Because uh, that's almost like, are you doing this all on purpose? Yeah, it feels like a bit. Yeah. It's a like bit this... in a golf movie that's actually just a real movie. Or he's doing it for the Netflix show. Or who, who knows? Who knows what he's up to? Couple other, um, couple other uh, Masters things really quick. Classic Rory. 64 final day. No real chance to win. All of a sudden, it became a little bit realistic. He might win, and that was when he he uh, had a terrible drive, and all of a sudden he was out again. He had the eighth Sunday sixty four ever. Felt very Matt Ryany to me. Wait, what? <laughs> How's it, Matt Ryan? You know, like Saints up twenty eight to three or twenty. Sorry, twenty eight three was a bad example. Saints up twenty eight to seven, fourth quarter. Matt Ryan puts together a couple drives. And all of a sudden, they're they're going for the onside down four, and he has four hundred twenty yards and four touchdowns. You're like Matt Ryan, biggest fantasy QB of the week. And it's like, yeah, but that was what the Rory thing felt like to me. I would say Matt has less support than Rory does. Probably, yeah. Even That's though they're fair. different, people they're like different Rory. Sports. I gotta say, when you talk about the second at second guy with the most adulation, he's definitely in the running. Okay, There's but a lot the of Rory golfers fans out there, golf fans love everybody. Like the thing I didn't understand, I had one roommate that loved it. Okay. Grew up playing it, loves it more than anything. And then I go, aren't there a couple of guys you don't like? And it was the dumbest answer, but it's the most accurate one. And realized I, why well, I probably wouldn't be super into it. He goes, what do you mean root against somebody? I'm like, there has to be a couple of guys you root against. He goes, no, he goes, you root for good golf. I'm like what? You just root for good golf. And then that's it. That's like, you were talking about standing near DJ when he had to get a ruling. Yeah. There's no dorkier version than the male species than when a golf ball's out of bounds and people run to look at it. Yeah. And point as if there aren't cameras everywhere at a pretty high end tournament where, Hey, we'll probably figure it out. Ralph we'll figure out where that ball is. And then guys like freak out to run to stand near the ball. So, um, well, it does feel like when you're there and they show up at the hole and all of a sudden they're standing next to it, it feels like they came out of the TV. (laughs) It's good. It's disorienting. It's also the shots they hit. Like DJ hits the shot and puts it like three feet. He barely even looked at it. He's like, all right, fuck it. All right, fine. I'll, then I'll hit the chip from here. And just like, boom, <laughs> like barely lined it up. We watched uh, Varner make one. Varner, I think, has potential as a charisma guy in person. Like the crowd was really into him. He just seems relatable. Um, he's big feaster famine guy. If he was a basketball player, he would definitely be like Jordan Poole. Even like 33 points one game and maybe like 10 the next, who knows? Um, but for the most part, like you're right. Everybody roots for everybody. Everybody just wants to see a cool shot. 
Nobody wants anything bad to happen. Yeah, you never and, want to be there for like a triple boat. <laughs> like Cam Smith today at 12. Nobody wants to be standing there for that, watching this guy just completely melt down at the worst time. All right. And you're right. You're right about all that. And actually, when you put it that way, like maybe it'd be great if more things were like that instead of searching for that negativity. And and I've been there. It is one of my mm. favorite sporting events. It exceeded all expectations. It's one of the few things I've ever gone to where I was kind of annoyed that I gave the passes for Saturday to my friends thinking like, all right, I've gone yeah. three days. I'll have it. I wanted to go back in on Saturday, but you know, whatever. I was trying to do my friends a favor. So I bounced. Um, I was lucky enough to go up with Homa. He invited me and um, a couple guys from down here. Yeah, we went up to Riviera and we did the Pro-Am walk with him on Wednesday. And so we just walked with him. And the thing that's always the craziest about it, and, and real golf people already understand this, but just how, how many times you guys see at somebody off the tee where the, you know, they're, they're screaming for, they've got the arm up left to right, and then 10 minutes later, they're putting for par. And you know to see yeah. it, when it all happens, to see the corrections, to see the approaches. Like it's one thing through the drives and the putting and all this stuff, but to see the approaches where what they're aiming at and what a miss is for them and how consistent they are, the flight of the ball. It's just to see it in person. Um, not that it's any different than any other sport that you see in person, realizing like how special these guys are. But uh, I've, I've rarely had as good of a time at a live event as, as I did at the Masters. It's that great. I actually think it's number, I haven't been to F1 yet. I think it's the number one. I can't believe how hard this is in person. Like when you see, especially that master's course, some of the holes, the 18, just how narrow that is. And some of the shots they have to hit. And the fact that there's just people all around them on every shot that they just have to kind of shut out and the level of concentration you need. Tennis was a little bit like that for me, seeing it in person with good seats for the first time. When you're seeing how hard it is to return somebody's first serve when it's, you know, 130 miles an hour and just these guys in the bat and how they're just moving before the guys even hitting the ball and they just kind of know left or right. And I was amazed by that, but you're right. Every sport has something. I think basketball probably translates the best to TV for how amazing it is. You I'm going to guess that watching F1, if you had a good vantage point in person, it's got to be out of control. a little bit more daunting. Yeah, I would I would say that's got to be, I mean, they have to be coming so fast. You probably have no idea where they're even coming from. Last thing on the Masters, the uh, the 12th hole. So Cam Smith melts down today and you know it right away. Goes in and it's just like, they might as well, somebody might just come on the course and just shoot him in the head. Like, it's just done. It's Joe Pesci, Goodfellas. This is a wrap. You just know it. Uh, but I was looking, I was researching all the things that happen on the 12th hole. And it really is. It really has had some great, like there was apparently an Arnold Palmer thing in 1959. He had a triple. Weisskopf in 1980 had a plus 13. It he went in the water five times and he was like a, one of the favorites. Uh, Greg Norman, obviously 96, Mickelson 09, McElroy 2011. Spieth, I think is the most famous recent one. And then Molinari went in there and that set up the Tiger one. But I don't feel like, I think that 12th hole needs better PR. I think when they show, when the master shows it, we need like conjuring music. I just think, I think they need to sell the shit out of it better. A fire pit in the background. Yeah. Just say maybe the scariest looking announcer we could have for the 12th. Smoke machines. Yeah. Like somebody, maybe they have like the, the, uh, dark makeup or something. Um, like the war oh. boys and Mad Max. Oh, watching the, uh, Red Sox Yankees. Montgomery just got nailed by a grounder. Not great. Um, yeah, I think I think they could go uh, a little bit scary in that hole. All right, so we're going to come back. 
And we're going to do a little NBA and try to set the stage for what part two of this podcast is going to be. All right, Rosillo. It is now 4.17 p.m. They're playing basketball right now. The East is in flux. The West is going to be in some flux. There was a really weird decision by Milwaukee to throw away their, uh, their ESPN game today. But they basically tried to checkmate. I was texting with Zach Lowe about it. Zach was saying they're basically trying to checkmate the Celtics to put them either two or four because they assumed Philly is going to try to win. Again, we'll know how all this is going to play out. Philly benched Harden and Embiid for rest tonight. So they're playing the Pistons and that's all going. I guess my big question, and I asked this to you, I think last week, and I'm going to ask it again. Why is everybody running from Brooklyn? I understand it even less this week than I did last week. And I know people, the Celtics could lose to them in round one and people cut this up like, oh, Simmons wasn't afraid of Brooklyn. I'm not saying there aren't reasons to be afraid of them. I just really value home court. I value the two seed. I value knowing that I have two game sevens at home. That's the whole point of the season. And I think for the Celtics, their home crowd matters more than any other home crowd in the East. They have the best crowd of all of the top five contenders that can actually like affect the game and get those guys going. I think they're going to be harder to beat at home. So I value it more than most. Where, where do you stand on it? Yeah, it is weird that no one seems to care about it at all anymore. And I mean, just when you look back historically, I, I think it's changed a bit. But I mean, over the years, remember, it used to be like 70% to home higher team in it game was like seven, 78 78 77% something like that right yeah i think it's it's dipped in recent years it's dipped yeah so but I it's dipped mainly because of the the clippers there were some teams that caused it to dip we had the rockets there's more three point variants the celtics lost the game 7 at cleveland but in general like if you're talking like a defense athleticism you know one score team like the celts i that's a team you'd want a game 7 at home Milwaukee doesn't care. I think Milwaukee. You wouldn't put Milwaukee's can... arena games. You wouldn't put that up there with Boston. Maybe. Yeah, I wouldn't. I I'd put it close, but not, not quite the same. I've seen that Boston crowd just steal games, and I'm not saying that because that's my team. But I I really feel like we've seen that home crowd. I thought that Wizard series is a good example. I'm still not quite the Kelly Olynyk game. There's yeah. just been some weird ones over the years where it's like, man, the crowd had a lot to do with that. Okay, so, so it, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, what do you think of Durant, okay? And now the Simmons news of today that he's potentially coming back for this, I guess, I don't believe get that. through the playoffs. I, I just the, don't believe it. Um, that's fine. But I think there's another part of this where you've been on this. If you've watched the Nets, are you sure you know what it is? Other than just being horrified of Durant. So do you want to... Are you so afraid of the best version of the Nets that you would rather avoid them and give Boston home court in game seven. Uh, I'm not, I'm not overwhelmed either way on the argument, but I'd say that, you know, when I was watching the Nets, let's go back almost a week ago, the Houston game, you're like, what, the, what is wrong with you guys? Like they won the game. They're down in New York by 20. And right. I'm going, Kind of to your point is we've been talking about this being like, are you afraid of something you actually shouldn't be afraid of? They come back, they beat them. I thought the Cavs win on Friday was a really nice win, even though Cleveland without Jared Allen, it's just a different team. And people figured out that like, if you can kind of cut off Garland, there's not a lot of threats there. And then even the Pacers game today, they screwed around with them where they 
were, it was close, and then they came back at it, and then Durant finds ways to make plays at the end. Durant had a million assists today. So, dude, they gave up. You you buried the lead. They gave up one twenty six to the Pacers. Yeah, they gave up sixty six like, in the second half. Hey, everybody and their brother can score one twenty on the net. So, I my point has not wavered. If you, let's just pencil in Durant and Kyrie for sixty to sixty five a game, if they're giving up one twenty. They still got to get sixty other points from the rest of their guys. Curry's playing on a sprained ankle, the whole thing. If you're telling me, hey, get second, because they 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 punted on it today, and now Philly, as you say, like I wasn't sure. I thought maybe would Philly try to get and beat a million more points so that the team could tweet out how many points he got in the MVP race here at the end. Um, no, I'm <laughs> serious. Like I kind of I, I thought that might happen, but then once Milwaukee yeah. punted on all of this, um. You know, maybe it's also about Milwaukee deciding that they just really want to play Chicago because they think that series is going to be so easy. So it's not, hey, let's avoid Brooklyn as much as have you guys seen who Chicago is? Chicago was 26 and 10. And since that time, they've gone 19 and 26. They can't defend anybody. They get their asses kicked. The Chicago Bulls are a bad basketball team right now. They have a like a 2019 Celtics, everything is really falling apart in a real way vibe to them. It is. I mean, all you have to do is watch them. I mean, even that Celtics game they lost, I mean, I'm not usually ref guy. I felt like the Bulls were getting every call that game and they still couldn't make it close. So it might be, it's not so much, hey, let's do it this way. We get to avoid Durant if he decides. Maybe they're still scared as shitless of him because of what almost happened last year in the playoffs. Because you know we thought Bud was done. We thought all the different storylines mm-hmm. that we had around the Milwaukee Bucks. And by the way, we can take a bye against the Chicago Bulls, who are a bad basketball team now, which is not debatable. All the stats tell you they're terrible, and they have no defensive answer for a guy like Giannis. Not that many do, but at least the Nets have other big guys they could potentially in a. If Simmons were to come back or Durant, if they just said, hey, the last three minutes, Durant, you got Giannis, not saying that's going to be easy either. That might be all added up more important to them than having, say, a game seven in a second round potentially against Boston. I just like having the game sevens. Yeah, look, I'm as scared of Durant as anybody. You know how I value Durant. I don't think you are. I think I'm more scared of him than you are. No, I'm scared of Durant. I just feel like that team, he could average... What's the most somebody can average in a playoff series realistically against the best defensive team in the league? Now, Rob Williams is out. Still a really good defensive team. But let's give them 35 a game for the series. Is that enough for them? Giving them 35. I'm just, I'm like, just, you can have it. 35 a game. Done. KD's going to average 35 a game against the Celtics or the Sixers or the Bucks. Any of those three teams. Is that enough for the Nets? from what we've seen from them defensively. And I don't think they can get stops. I don't think they can get stops either. You know, Drummond is is a real minutes guy for them, which I think in the playoffs, even though I feel like he's been motivated and has had moments where he's looked better. Um, yeah, what happens when teams start fouling him in the second and third quarters to try to mess him up? And also the, that same thing with Simmons. Simmons is going to be just thrown in the fire, hasn't played all year. I thought that report, look, if he plays, I'll be shocked. But I actually thought that report was crazy that they're just going to be like, yeah, you know who would be great? Ben Simmons, throwing him out there. He shot 34% from the free throw line last playoffs. He's just going back out there? He's not going to have a warm-up game? I don't like their defense either, okay? I, I'm with you. But uh, I, I think it has a lot to do with Chicago in there as well. They're not even guaranteed they- Chicago yet because, I mean, we're, we don't know what's going to happen. But, like, Detroit's beating Philly right now. 
right? So the Celtics could win, get the, and, or the Celtics could decide to tank the second half of this Boston game, knowing the Sixers are going to lose. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about all this in part two. Um, I just think people seem to think Brooklyn is a little more scary than they are. And I think people are underrating Miami, including myself last week, because it seems like Miami righted the ship, whatever weird off the court thing happened with them. They, it seems like they're okay now. They're going to have home court in every round. And um, I just don't think that's like a picnic to play them in round two. No, not at all. I, I, I've i not been uh, as nice. I wouldn't say, I don't think I've been critical of Miami, but I haven't put them at the top of my, the teams I'm most scared of in the East list. I've, I've probably had them third at best at times, probably fighting yeah. with Brooklyn, which seems completely unfair to Miami. And if there's one thing about the Butler thing, as bad as it looked, if there's, if there's a team that finds a way through that shit, it's the Miami Heat. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's talk MVP. And we'll do all the all NBA stuff on the uh on the second podcast. But um I gotta say I was ready for Giannis to win me over after he had that uh Tuesday, Thursday last week against Philly, against Brooklyn. I got excited about you know what? He could steal this. His stats are amazing. I think he should get some real credit for the year after a championship year, how fucking hard that guy plays. Um, they had some weird stuff, not a perfect team. Lopez was out most of the year. Like I, I started talking myself into it and then they kind of just started throwing games away, including um, today. I want my MVP to care about like not be afraid of Brooklyn. I didn't like that. They just kind of punted the two seed. Wait, that's part of your calculus well, of this? No, I'm saying I thought he had a chance to steal it, but he, obviously didn't care and there was some momentum there for him that just kind of dissipated and I think Jokic grabbed it by the balls probably four or five days ago and it seems like this is a wrap who do you have let me take you through my maze here I'll make it quick great if I were what kind of maze are we talking is this like a lost episode is this like Dexter <laughs> what kind of TV show am I entering What's up with that smoke? Did they ever come to the conclusion? What was that smoke, smoke monster? Thing? Is smoke monster going to be yeah. here? If I'm being totally honest about all of it, like we all have little biases in there, right? Like little things that we think are important. So it's not just straight stats. I'd like yeah. to think I watch a lot of basketball, so I have a good good sense of what's going on. Doesn't mean I know everything. Doesn't mean I get everything right. Um, then I think the story is always a big influence on the voting, but I was like, I don't want to be part of the story because I think there's two things that are clear. I probably went into this trying to find a way to get him beat a vote because I kind of, I love him. All right. Not that I don't love Jokic, not that I don't love Giannis. I, I just, I think he, he's like the one guiding light through all the Sixers bullshit over all of these years. And in the aftermath of Simmons tanking this season for a million different reasons and one that we have to be sensitive about uh, for for Simmons camp to like complain to ESPN that Simmons didn't criticize Embiid after the Toronto series. Yeah. Just, just because Embiid put his arms up because he couldn't believe in a playoff game that Simmons didn't dunk when they shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like Joel's been the, Joel's been the guy that's got it right. He's the guy that's figured it out. He stayed healthier than I ever thought, but that's not really what this award is about. All right. So if I was admitting a pre-bias to like, which way would I lean in a tie? It's probably because I'd really love to see Joel Embiid get an MVP. Then there was this stretch of Giannis where he was playing against Brooklyn, the Philly win where he has the block, and I'm going, do you actually think anybody's better than him right now? Because it doesn't feel that way. Now, yes, with Durant's scoring arsenal, 
And the last couple minutes of a playoff game, the shots that Durant can get you, I think, are beyond anybody else in the league. And that's why I'm still like a little sensitive to the idea that would I still actually take Giannis over Durant? Not to start a franchise because Giannis is always healthier, right? But I'm like, if I'm going who I just think is the best, I, it, it might be Giannis. And then I asked myself, if Giannis hadn't won one, Giannis would win in a landslide probably this year because the voters would say, let's finally get it to Giannis. So am I holding previous success against Giannis the way we've done mm. that in the MVP? Now you're talking my language. I love right. the You got to throw out so, the previous results. After. So I started, I had this week or two where I go, I think I might vote Giannis. And then I came through everything again with Jokic. And I've watched so many of those Denver games. Not to say I haven't watched the other guys a million times. Jokic does fucking everything for a bad team. Yeah. And if you want to get into the, the semantics of six seed versus a four seed, like you realize Sixers people are going, you can't vote for a six seed for MVP. It's like you're a fucking four seed and you're like a game ahead of them. If Embiid had 65 right. wins, okay, different conversation. If Giannis had 60 wins and they were like a Phoenix in the East, Different conversation. The records are close enough that you can throw out any of the seeding talk. Jokic does everything for a bad Denver team. They all have similar records, and Jokic is going to complete the first 2,000-point, 1,000-rebound, 500-assist season while having a usage rate that still holds up with a true shooting percentage that has only been doubled by um, or only been accomplished by Seth twice, Durant, Adrian Dantley, and Barkley. The, the entire Jokic package and the record being similar and his his stuff with him, I don't know how you vote for anybody else. You're preaching in the choir. I mean, it's funny that we went through the same Giannis kind of left that door open for him at some point. I really like a beat too. I did a whole 15-minute thing at the top of my pod like two months ago about what a shame it was that they were going to waste this great story with this dumb Ben Simmons situation. And then they addressed it and they got a guy who kind of sent them sideways. <laughs> Didn't really help them that much. Look, sometimes we just have a couple guys who had great seasons. And I think this has turned into, if you don't pick Embiid, that means you're against Embiid or whatever. And I just feel like Jokic had a harder burden than Embiid did this season. He lost his best two teammates. He played with a two through 12 that was probably bottom seven or eight in a two through 12. If we're doing the two through 12 draft, where's that, where's that Denver two through 12 going in the two through 12 draft? <laughs> there's one other player with like an above average PER. I think there's zero players with a, a positive net rating or something like that. Right. I, and so, okay, so then you could be like, well, wait a minute. So Embiid's going to lose because the rest of the nuggets aren't as good. And you're like, well, this is kind of where we land back on most valuable. But then in a vacuum, when I see the Embiid arguments, like, okay, the last center to just win a scoring title. You're not going to vote for that guy. You're like, okay, but you don't get to have all the Embiid arguments in a vacuum when you have stuff like Jokic, who's going to finish with an average of 27, 13 and seven. That's never been done before. It's never been done before. And it's not Westbrook bullshit. Okay. Cause we'll go traditional number on you. These are real numbers in a guy that has no help and he's still incredibly efficient. And I test wise, it holds up every time you watch them. It's always unbelievable how much he does. And I don't understand why he does get tired. There's a couple games. There's that one stretch last month when he, they had like was six games and nine nights. And it was the first time he started to look a little beaten up. And, and they think, lost their yeah. golden state at home. Yeah, during that stretch. Like, they were hitting a weird. Yeah, he's beaten up because everybody's just hitting him with the kitchen sink and he's the point guard and he has to protect the rim. And, you know, he's playing with these guys. The The crazy thing about his assist number, because I saw some people are trying to discredit it where it's like he's averaging eight assists a game, but 
some of them are handoffs. Well, if we're going to start discrediting them, what about all the assists that he didn't get because he was playing with a bunch of like role guys, right? The fact that he wasn't playing with Jamal Murray, who probably would have been worth two assists a game for him. You know, I do think there's a world where he, he could be a triple-double average guy. And I don't care about triple-doubles, but I do think like there could be a 25-13-10 in his future. I was looking back at everybody I voted for the last six years. And um, in 2019, I voted and beat over Jokic. Last year, I voted Jokic over and beat for first team, second team. Um, but Jokic has been, he's put in the work now. We're talking 2019 second team, 2020 second team, and then two first teams, one this year, one maybe, uh, one maybe this year, one last year. Um, but he's put in the work. I still feel like there's a level for him to go where he might even be a little bit better, which is crazy to say. But as his teammates get better, I think he's going to get a little bit better. That's why, he, to me, he's the MVP. He's doing this with a below average supporting cast. And I think if you switch the two guys, I do not think Denver's record is as good. And you could talk me into Philly's record being as good. And that's it. If Philly had a much better record than Denver, then maybe you can get me there, you know? Right. Because if the, they're 10 games higher. And it still would be tough. But. You can point to the analytics. You can point to the traditional stuff. You can watch all of these guys as much as I feel like I have and have a really good grasp on, on who's what. And I, I just, look, I'd, it, it's so unfortunate for Embiid because what's happening is that we have these three guys all doing something so incredibly special that everyone's individual arguments are historic and overwhelming. But that's yeah. not the way it works. Like, I don't like when we'll go back and look at results and you'll say, well, you know, how could this have not happened? Or how come this guy didn't happen with this guy? And you're like, okay, but are you just saying it is blanket? Or are you comparing, are you putting in context with what also was happening around him? So they'll look back, we could go back in five years and be like, I can't believe MB didn't win the MVP. It's like, okay, but are you going to ignore the other incredible stories that we also had that season? And that's also, the whole point. That's the whole point the way, of winning it for your season. Also, this was an awesome Embiid season. It shouldn't be denigrated if he's number two in MVP instead of number one. He answered every single question we ever had about him. He stayed way more durable than I ever thought. He destroys any team that's undersized, like in a real crazy Shaq late 90s, early 2000s way. And he's good on both ends. He's a great teammate. And this is like, it's all a win. And sometimes there's just a guy who was a smidge better. Like you go back to 2017, I voted for Harden that year. Um, a lot Westbrook run. They were 47 and 35. Houston was 55 and 27. And Harden's stats were pretty much the same as Westbrook's stats. It's just people got excited about triple doubles and what he meant to the franchise. There was a little bit of the Jokic argument. We didn't understand for this right. team. But we said this before. We didn't understand usage as well. Because no, that's, we the single, that's the single highest usage season in the history of the NBA. So then you're looking at it that way and you go, oh, all right. Well, then Zach, Zach voted for Kawhi that year. They had 61 wins. Kawhi had the third worst case out of three. That one never sat right to me because the eye test wasn't there. Mm -hmm. The eye test is there with Embiid and it's there with Giannis. If you catch them on the right night, you're like, this, these guys are, those three guys I thought were head and shoulders from an eye test, ass kicking standpoint over everybody except for Durant. From just watching night to night and being like, holy shit. And those are the four best guys in the league. And they're, you know, Giannis is at his peak. Jokic is pretty much there. And, I, and Bede will probably never have a better season than this season. So I, to me, there's 
nothing to be ashamed of. I think I think this was just a great MVP season. It really was. And if it somebody's was, like, and beats my guy, the Simmons thing was fucked up. He did everything for that team. He kept them together and and blah, blah. Like, I'd be like, all right, I get it. I hear your argument. But I just, for me, it's Jokic by a hair. That's how I felt. That's how I felt. And I, I really, you know, you know me. Once I got the vote, it was a big deal. I was really excited. I feel like yeah. you got to take it seriously. And I was like, make sure you challenge yourself on everything. I mean, I've spent days writing all this stuff down and then making sure. And I was like, okay, but I'm not going to freak out because Embiid just had another 40-12. And that's what I think also happens on social media. Like Embiid has a 40-12 and 12 game. And then it's like, how can you not vote for this guy? And you're like, it's a six-month award, man. Yeah. It's a six-month award. And it, these numbers, nobody's saying Embiid isn't amazing. I just thought that once it got really close, I didn't want to hear the team seating argument. It just, it, to me, it's not relevant when the records are this similar. I, I didn't love it, but I separated it from my voting process. I didn't love the hardcore campaigning that they were doing for Embiid. I thought it was a little over the top, like time, perfectly timing the three big features about him heading into the, it was like watching how they do it in Hollywood when like a movie's coming out. And then he was really pining for it in a way that, I don't know, you have a chance to win the title too. Let's talk about that. You know, the MVP is great, but you never heard Jokic be like, oh man, being a back-to-back MVP would mean so much to me. He could give a shit. He's trying to win playoff games. So um, I get it. Embiid was probably fired up that he's in this situation to begin with, right? That he's tapped into all of the potential that we always hoped that he had. And I get it, but I would focus on trying to, uh, you've, you've, you and Harden, you don't really have a bench, but you're in this weird Eastern Conference. Who knows? Like, that's all that matters, you know? Yeah, I look, first I, or second, who cares? I wouldn't have it factor in the voting. I understand, though, from a team standpoint, like Daryl, if you look at him, you look at, like the team always has to tell the guy, especially today's NBA world, that we've always had we your back. You. At every, I get it. We have it every yep. turn. So PR is setting up those interviews they're they're not going to allow a situation where Embiid has a has a moment where he can say, "Oh, they didn't have my back," and that's why so many teams are so over the top. I mean, yep. the Houston Rockets sent in a Jalen Green Rookie of the Year campaign to the Life Advice email because they didn't have a contact for me. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I don't blame them. I mean, we yeah. used to get back in the ESPN days. I'll never forget one of my favorite campaigning items that showed up: the Timberwolves. I forget which award it was for, for Kevin Love, but they sent this Kevin Love cologne. And it was labeled and like this whole thing. Wow. And yeah, and it was hilarious. You he still made, have it? You should break that out for parties. I got to tell you, I really wish I had it still. The K-Love? Now, now my confidence is to a level where I'd be like, I'll just douse myself in Kevin Love and go out. <laughs> you know, back then I might be like, what if somebody asks me what I'm wearing? And I'm like, oh, You're I'm walking wearing Manhattan Kevin. Beach, I wish, people are like, I, what is that? Are you wearing Kevin Love? I am. I, I wish that would happen to me now and be like, what is that? Is that, is that, that, well, I don't even want to give away any secrets. And they'd be like, mm. is that Kevin Love? Is that Kevin Love 2012? I'd be like, it is, it is, it's the so summer we have, one. You have Jokic one and B2. I do as well. I have Giannis, Giannis two. You have Giannis two and B3. Yeah. Are you, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Really? I do. Yeah. I, if they were a top two seed, I would have talked myself into it. But um, I think Embiid had a slightly harder burden. That would be the only reason. But Giannis was right there. I was ready. I mean, God damn, what a tough season. Booker four. 
I've had Booker four. I've had Doncic four. I've had Tatum four. So I'm not sure. We still have like two more days, don't we? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically, we got to mail it tomorrow night. Yeah, well, I, that means I got work to do tomorrow. Right now, I have Booker four, Luca five. But if, if, uh, Booker Tatum head to head, it's kind of, it's kind of tough, but I, I feel like I'm leaning towards Luca Booker or Booker Luca. That's where so, I am too. Right. I will say, because I was trying to figure out what to do with all NBA. We'll talk about that in part two. Tatum's Tatum's case is just better than I expected. I knew from just watching the season and the eye test factor of it and just what a great two-way player he's been, especially second half of the year and how durable he's been too. He's 36 minutes a night. You know, he's played really the majority of the season. But there's some really good advanced stuff with him too. It's a, it's a better resume than I was expecting. If you go resume to resume, Booker Tatum, it's kind of harder for for Booker to hold up, but yeah. But the problem is Phoenix is so good this year that that's Phoenix, where I'm kind of like, All right, yeah. If they, if they go get Booker. the 65 wins, now you're like, now you're in a very very small elite group, and they probably could have even done a little bit better than that if they really wanted to. Yeah. So when we get to part two, we'll talk about the LeBron thing. LeBron has not played since the last time we talked. He's going to end up at 56 games. There's some fun Curry versus Trey stuff. We'll do, I guess, Rookie of the Year, unless you want you want to talk Rookie of the Year right now before we go. Actually, let's go. We already did an hour. So I'm good to go on. Left. Yeah, I'm good to go on all of it. I mean, I just, I'm telling you, for those that think this, this has got to be, how hard is this in, compared to other years, voting for MVP and first team? First team's a little easier. I actually think the all NBA stuff, once I did it again this week, I went through it. I'm good. I have that done. I know exactly what I'm going to do. But the the top five for MVP is it's really, really hard because it's been an incredible season at the top of town. I don't know how long I've had a vote, but this was the hardest one since 2008 for me. 2008 was KG and Kobe and Chris Paul and Kobe, um, you know, had really tried to sabotage his way out of there for the first part of the season. And it was really hard to think of giving him the MVP for that for me. Um, KG, his stats weren't totally there. I felt like Chris Paul was the most valuable of any, any of those guys. And it, it was a lesser version of the same argument we're having now, because the difference this time is you have these three guys who are going to be, go down as three of the best guys from this generation, and they might be having peak seasons. And if they're not peak seasons, they're very close to peak seasons, you know? And when you start now, now you're in, and they're not as good as the 90 and 93 guys, but now you're in that category of when. It used to be Barkley versus Hakeem versus Jordan and Magic versus Bird versus Jordan. These guys aren't as good as that. But when the star power really rises in a way that honestly Harden, Westbrook, Kawhi, it wasn't there in the same way, as fun as it was to argue about that. They just weren't as meaningful players as these three are. Two things. The Kobe example you just brought up, though, was terrific because he wins in 08. And then you'll hear retroactively, I can't believe Kobe only won one. You're like, okay, go through it all. Like these, he should have won in 06. 06 right. was the one he should have won. But it's a bit like the Embiid thing when we look back and you go like, oh, I can't believe Embiid didn't win it. And then on the other part that I thought, imagine if Durant were healthy all year. Oh, imagine, yeah. Imagine trying to figure that part of this out. Because you know when it comes to the all-NBA stuff and the LeBron-Durant arguments where I ended up having both in, and we'll get to that because I, I don't know if we agree there, because I saw, I did go and look at this, see some other people that have votes and how they were writing about what they might or might not do to make sure, you know, you don't want 
you know, in a situation where you're submitting a ballot, completely missing somebody. But Durant knowing that he was a one seed before he got hurt, <laughs> that's that's a hell of a lot different than where the Lakers landed and where they were all season long. So um, I just can't imagine what we would do if we had a 70 or 68 game Durant season here and they were a top four seed in the East. Yeah, Durant was 35 and 19 this season. Oh, they won today. So he's 36 and 19 this season. And when he doesn't play, they were 8 and 19. But you're right. If he plays 72 games and he does what he did all season, it's a it's an all-time race. It's a four-team race. And Durant in general, you know, the all-NBAs and the MVP stuff for him never kind of matched the impact of him in a way. And you made the Kobe point about just go back. Like, it makes sense every year. There was no year where he got screwed. But um, but this would have been, I think, a year that he could have been in the mix. All right, we're going to wrap up. We will see you after uh, the late games. Celtics beating Memphis right now. Sixers beating Detroit right now. Who the hell knows how this is going to play out? So we will know all the playoff matchups. We'll do Rookie of the Year and All-NBA. And that will be the part two of this podcast. It was produced by Kyle Creighton. Thanks to Steve Cerruti and Dylan Berkey as well. Rosillo, I'll see you in a few hours. I wanna see them on a way so.